You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. So as um, we started our worship time last week, our Sarah told us a story, for those of you who were here to hear that, that there's another side to that I'm going to tell you about here this morning. So I hope you brought your sense of humor with you. Because if you remember last week, when Sarah was talking about what had happened with her and her family, um, she and the kiddos were out doing errands, I guess, and they, they ran over something and they got a flat tire. And it's like, oh no, what are we going to do? And th- one of the parts of the story that she told was that it just happened to happen where they could get a tire repaired. There was a repair shop right there. But it was very, very frustrating to her, and understandably so. You know, it's expensive and it's completely unexpected and just one of those things that happens when you go really and so she wrote her husband Tim and I actually saw this text she showed it to me earlier this week when we were talking about it she wrote her husband Tim and she tells him what's happened and she's frustrated and I'm sorry I you know I know this was an accident but it's going to be expensive the tire's got to be fixed and on and on and he just writes back well famine happens Now, some of you are going, what? And others of you who were here the last time I preached a couple weeks ago know exactly what that's referring to. But in this story of Joseph that we have been following for many, many weeks now as it's been building and building and building in the book of Genesis, there is a famine that does take place in that part of the world. This is a historical fact and reality. It really did happen. And for seven years, there was a dire famine in the Fertile Crescent. And the only place that had food was the country of Egypt. And those of you who know the story of Joseph know many of the details that are involved with that. We've been looking at those the last several weeks. I'm not going to give you a comprehensive lead up to where we're going today. Gabe Myers did a great job of that last Sunday. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that message or even better, read your Bible. But that being said... What has happened now is that Joseph, through a series of circumstances, has been elevated to be the prime minister of Egypt. He is second in command to only Pharaoh himself. And so because this famine took place, all these peoples in the ancient Near East were being displaced. Many of them were trying to go to Egypt. Almost all of them ended up at least making a trip to Egypt because that was the only place they had food, and Joseph was in charge of the collection and distribution of that. And so now here appear his brothers from the land of Canaan. He hasn't seen them in over 20 years since they had sold him off into slavery. They had no idea what had happened to him. And they have no idea that standing before Joseph, they're standing before their brother. All they know is he's second in command to Pharaoh. So they don't recognize him, but he does them. And if you've been with us, we've been watching as this story has been playing out that he's working this process with them. At first, it seems like he's kind of toying with them and kind of playing with them and making them jump through hoops. But what he's actually doing is he is leading towards a forgiveness process. But is he truly going to forgive them? Or is he going to take his revenge on them? Because he's in the ideal place to do it. He has absolute power over them. And what they did to him was despicable. It was horrible. So how is he going to respond? Well, through a series of events, the brothers have made a second journey now back to Egypt. They're headed away. They think everything's okay. Joseph maneuvers some circumstances to put them in a place where they have to come back to him, and so they do. And now they are pleading 
for the life of their youngest brother because through the circumstances that have happened here, Benjamin now is going to have to stay and be Joseph's slave. And what now leads up to our passage and what we looked at last week is this is the longest monologue in all of Genesis. It is, of all people, Joseph's brother, Judah, who is making this appeal on Benjamin's behalf. And he makes this impassioned plea, please do not do this. Do not make my brother your slave. It will literally kill my father, Jacob. I promised this would not happen. I promised I would bring Benjamin home safely with me and my other brothers. And now we're going to pick up the rest of the story. And I want you to watch now how Joseph responds. So this is Judah's last part of his speech. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. And then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. So Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers weren't able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler over all Egypt. Now hurry back to father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord over all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds, all that you have. And I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to it will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you've seen. And bring my father down quickly. And then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and he wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. And when the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan. And bring your father and families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. And you are also directed to tell them, do this. Take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives, and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings, because the best of Egypt will all be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them carts, as Pharaoh had commanded, and he also gave them provisions for their journey, and to each of them he gave new clothing. But to Benjamin, 
He gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father. Ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. And then he sent his brothers away. And as they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he's the ruler over all Egypt. And Jacob was stunned. He didn't believe him. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when they saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, I'm convinced. My son Joseph is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. What an amazing story. And there's just some things I'd like us to highlight together as we walk our way through this. For starters, remember The brothers still don't know Joseph is Joseph. And this is kind of amusing to me because up to this point, he has been speaking to them through an interpreter. They don't know he speaks Hebrew. And now all of us, all of a sudden he says in their language, hey, I'm Joseph. By the way, how's dad? You know, it's like, what? Right? Can you imagine your shock at this? And it really is Joseph. And this is profoundly important. And we cannot miss this message throughout this story because we've been getting hints of it and now it's right out there for us to see that God has been orchestrating all of these circumstances to accomplish what he's, what he's wanted. And over and over again, Joseph gives him credit. God sent me ahead of you. God sent me ahead of you. It was not you who sent me here, but God. God has made me Lord over all Egypt. It's very significant. And we'll come back to that here in just a little bit. But also though, Look how Pharaoh responds. He comes right in behind of Joseph and he elevates the incredibly generous offer that Joseph has made to his brothers and family. And he says, you get the best of Egypt. We know right where Goshen is. It's the, it's the um, district of Ramses. It is the most fertile, the best land in all of Egypt. Well watered, close to Joseph and the royal court. I mean, they truly were getting the very best profound blessing but this is really amusing to me as well he sends him away and he tells him not to squabble on the journey back and it almost feels like a pat on the head doesn't it okay this is what we're going to do and by the way pat 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 don't fight it's like when i've read this i i kind of get a little hung up on it because it just it kind of feels condescending to be honest i mean it's just like Why would you say that? Well, for starters, in fairness to Joseph, the brothers don't have a real great track record of getting along, right? They fight all the time. But the other piece of this that I think is more significant, and this is a could it be, I don't know this for sure, but it sure makes sense to me, and this is what we do know. This is the first time Benjamin knows what really happened to Joseph. Do you realize on the first trip to Egypt, he was not with them? When they begin to talk among themselves, you know what? We are being punished for what we did to Joseph. And God is, God is rightfully disciplining us because of what we've done. Benjamin wasn't around for any of those conversations. So this is the very first time he finds out after 22 years what really happened to his brother. He wasn't killed by a wild animal. His very brother sold him into slavery. Can you imagine what that trip back to dad must have been like? They very 
reasonably could have been squabbling and fighting about all this. And Joseph says, no, don't do that. And it makes you wonder, did they come clean with dad? Did they tell dad that they had sold Joseph into slavery 22 years earlier? I think it's inferred that they did. I think Benjamin and Jacob now for the first time are hearing what really happened 22 years ago. But this is what's really ironic to me. 22 years ago, they lied to dad and he believes them. Now, 22 years later, they're telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth and he doesn't believe them. He's stunned. And the word for that in the original language means stunned. I mean... He just cannot believe it. It it really is remarkable. And here is Jacob at 130 years old and presumably the one thing left on his bucket list before he dies. If he could have anything in the world, it would be to see Joseph again. And what does he get? He gets to see Joseph again. Pretty amazing story. And a happy ending, right? Right? Well, kind of. And I think this is where it's good for us to remember what we're reading here. This is not a fable. This is not a fairy tale. This really did happen. It is a true story. And therefore, it's real life. Kind of a happy ending. But sometimes when we read these biblical stories, we can treat them like fairy tales or fables. And, oh, yeah, of course, it turned out to be a happy story. Well, yeah, not so fast. At what cost is all this happening? Joseph will never get back those 22 years of heartache and pain and loss and for a big part of that imprisonment that he had to go through. He will never get to have that back. He will bear the emotional scars of that for the rest of his life. Jacob will never get back all those years that he thought his favorite son was dead and gone. All those years of grieving and heartache and sorrow and probably depression. He doesn't get any of that back. And I just surface that, not to rain on our parade here. It is a great ending to the story. But to make this accessible and relatable and real because it is. This is real life. And so therefore, it is very applicable for you and me. And one of the things that we necessarily need to do business with is to wrestle with what we see in Joseph. Over and over again, he says, God did this. God has been at work in this. God has been weaving all this together somehow to accomplish what he wants. And it doesn't just start here. That begins somewhere way back when Joseph was in the pit. Do you remember that? When he was literally in the pit of prison? And the baker and the cup maker, or cup bearer, whatever, come to him and they have these dreams and he says, well, God can interpret those. Tell me those. At some point, Joseph realized that God was all he had. And I think it was when he was in the pit. I think when he was in prison, when he had lost everything, when he had nothing, he realized the one thing I do have is my God. And we see that reflected in his language and in how he lives. And I think there's something there for you and me. You will find this God in the pit. Because this is the only true God. And this is the only God who will go with you into the pit and meet you there. 
and who eventually, if not in this life, in the life to come, will pull you out of it. We find this God in the pit. Joseph did, and you can too. And let's remember, his greatest pit and where we're going to go now wasn't the pit of prison. The greatest pit of his life was his family. It was his brothers and what they had done to him, the wrong they had inflicted upon him. This is all about relationships. And some of the greatest pits you and I will struggle and find ourselves up against are the difficulties we'll find in relationship, even with the people closest to us. So please understand this principle and please own it, internalize it, anchor yourself to it, and remember it. And here it is. God brings good out of the worst possible circumstances. That's one of the unavoidable, unmistakable, clear truths that is being illustrated for us in this story. God brings good out of evil, and we have to cling to that because quite honestly, sometimes it doesn't feel like it. I remember years ago talking with a pastoral mentor, and as we were talking, and I was early on in in this thing called being a pastor, and I remember him telling me, Jay, you know, it's really, it's interesting. You're going to talk to people who don't understand what you do, and that's okay. They don't understand pastoring and shepherding and ministry and whatever. And, you know, there'll be those people out there who think, oh, yeah, you work one day a week and take the other six off and, you know, yada, yada. That being said, but he said, sometimes people will treat you like you're naive. And you'll hear that. That people will think, especially people who aren't Jesus followers and, and really who are outside of community, will think, or Christian community will think, yeah, you're kind of relationally naive and, you know, don't really understand what can happen in relationships. And he said, you got to prepare yourself. He said, you are going to see every possible kind of brokenness and ugliness and selfishness and betrayal as a pastor. You're going to come to the point where you're going to recognize and realize because of the sin that resides in every single one of us, the selfishness, the brokenness, anyone is capable of anything at any time. And you will get to a point where you stop getting surprised by the kinds of situations that you'll be stepping into. And I remember going home that day going, really? Really? And he was right. That's true. But I can also tell you this. Also in that conversation, he said, you will get a front row seat of God taking the most horrible, hurtful, painful, difficult circumstances and relationships and somehow bringing good out of them. You won't always get to see it, but many times you will, and that's what will keep you going in the face of this reality. And he's absolutely right. Yesterday, I went to a memorial service at my, at my previous church at Village. An entire generation now of these spiritual giants and men and women who invested into Jamie and me are passing away. They're going home to be with the Lord. And as I was back at Village yesterday, I was reminded of um, the reality of doing life together and how important that is. And I was reflecting on that I've now been here at Grace longer than I was at Village on staff there. And because I've been blessed with being able to do life and community with you for, through the years, as I begin to think about what I've seen and what I've been able to be a part of as, as one of your pastors, I could go down the list, and I won't, I promise, but of folks who have gone through the wreckage and the heartache and betrayal of affair, who have worked through that, 
between the two spouses and who have found healing and hope and they're still together today. I can name you a number of couples who have walked that road. I could name for you a number of folks who have done battle with addictions and they still do, but they've been able to to walk away from that. And you just on and on and on. But the, but the point is that God works through the most difficult of circumstances and the most painful of circumstances and sometimes we don't see it. And all we have is to anchor ourselves to that reality and to that truth is he works in the most difficult of circumstances. But it's more than this that drove what Joseph did with his brothers. He said he got this and understood this, but I think there was a whole lot more than this. When we started this passage and we deliberately dipped into Genesis 44 in the last part of Judah's speech, what was the tipping point for Joseph to reveal himself to his brothers? What was the tipping point for him to begin now the reconciliation process with them? It was Judah and what he said. Now, can we do some business with that for just a minute? Who was Judah? Wasn't Judah the one 22 years earlier who said, let's not just kill Joseph, let's make some money. Let's sell him. Let's sell him to the next caravan that goes by. If we're going to get rid of him, we might as well make some money on it. And then if you remember in the arc of this story we've been looking at, we come to Genesis 38, which feels like a profound interruption of this Joseph story because it's all about Judah, remember? We, we come to this Judah story and go, why in the world are we shifting the focus now to Judah? And we begin to see, and if you were here for this sermon when Gary walked us through it, man, what a dirtbag. Seriously, what a despicable human being Judah was at that point in his life. This was a guy who abused people, took advantage of people. He has sex with his own daughter-in-law because he thinks she's a prostitute. What in the world, Judah, were you doing sleeping around with prostitutes to begin with? And she was put in that place because he would not take care of her. He would not fulfill his duties to care for her and take her into his household. I mean, the guy was awful. And yet something happened. Do you remember in that story in Genesis 38? When he realizes the person who I just slept with and who is now pregnant is my daughter-in-law. And she did that because in no small part, I put her in that kind of a position where she was that desperate. And that began a repentance process in Judah's life. And he began to change. And we see this progression, progression beginning to take place in the Joseph story, and now it culminates in this speech, the longest speech in all of Genesis, where Judah is pleading for Benjamin's life. And what does he say? My life for his. Take me. Make me your slave. And let Benjamin go. Judah? Judah, of all people, is saying this? What in the world is happening here? A transformation has happened. And Joseph, evidently so moved by that at that point, can no longer conceal his identity and begins to reconcile with his brothers because of what Judah was willing to do. And I would submit to you that is just as inspiring and just as powerful and just as transformational for you and me as it was for Joseph. And this is why. 
what are so many of our movies and plays and musicals about? What is the storyline? Here's a recent example for you. You don't have to raise your hands, but how many of you or those who are listening in our online community have seen Avengers Endgame? And what is the storyline? Now, I will try not to spoil it for you who haven't seen it, okay? But I don't have a lot of sympathy for you because this movie's been out for months. (laughs) It's at the hood of all places. It's cheap to go see. It's even out on Redbox and DVD. You can go buy the crazy thing, okay? So it's been out a long time because they've eked it for as much money as they can make. But all that being said, if you haven't seen it, I'll try to behave myself here. But the movie comes to its culmination point at the very end when it is very clear that someone is going to have to sacrifice themselves on behalf of everyone else and it is the last person you would ever believe it could be. And if you are a Marvel movie fan, in the previous 22 movies that have led up to this, (laughs) cash cow, they have been dropping hints the whole way of what's about to happen. The last person you will ever expect is literally going to save humanity and all of civilization. And I won't tell you who it is. Those of you who have seen the movie know who it is. I am not the kind of guy who goes to a movie multiple times, usually. I've seen this movie more times than I will admit to you publicly. And the last time I went was for good reason. We had family who hadn't seen it, and I said, you have to see this movie, so we took them. So this most recent time I was there, I've seen the movie. I know what's going to happen. This time, when it came to that point where it's clear the last person you would ever expect is going to have to sacrifice their life, I looked around. And I'm not exaggerating. There was not a dry eye in the entire theater. Some were trying to hide it, but everybody was crying. Why? It's a movie. (laughs) For those of you who are hardened in your hearts. (laughs) But, just teasing, but why is that so moving to us? Why would people cry about something like that? Because, my friends, this is our story. It's our story. What is the story of the gospel? Jesus Christ, the last person anyone would ever expect, sacrifices himself on behalf of all of us who don't deserve it in order to give us right relationship with him and with each other. Isaiah tells us in the Old Testament, Jesus was unassuming, he was ordinary, he's the last person anyone would ever expect would be God and man come to fulfill all the promises of God and that's exactly what He does. Why does this story move us? Why do so many movies and books and plays and musicals have something in the storyline where someone sacrifices themselves on behalf of everyone else and it so powerfully moves us? Because it's our story. Because intuitively you know that you need right relationship with God. But it will not happen on your own effort. You cannot get there. The only way to win the war against sin is through Jesus Christ. Through the forgiveness that he offers. The new life that he offers. You cannot get there by being a good person or a better person. You have to be a new person. And it's an inside out transformation that only happens through Jesus Christ 
coming into your life through his Holy Spirit. You see, my friends, reconciliation really begins with you and God. That's where reconciliation in any relationship needs to begin. It's between us and God. Scripture says it this way in 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, his representatives. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Can you reconcile to other people without being reconciled to God? Of course you can. People do it all the time. Consistently? No. Completely? No, not really. Because just like, really, only people who have been forgiven know how to forgive. Only people who have been reconciled to God really do understand what it means to reconcile to someone else. Especially someone who doesn't deserve it. Especially someone who's betrayed you, especially who's hurt you in unspeakable ways, especially, especially when it's your closest relationships in your life, your family, your friends. How do you reconcile with someone like that? Well, it starts with you reconciling to God first. But honestly, reconciliation can be so complicated. And so can forgiveness and fairness. But forgiveness takes one person, you. You can offer forgiveness to someone, but it takes at least two to reconcile, sometimes more. And you don't have control over what someone else does, but you do have control over you. You have a choice. Reconciliation also takes two people, so here we go. If you're not here, you will be here in this broken world we live in with broken people. Are you doing what God has called you to do, not the other person, but you, where you need to reconcile with someone? Are you doing your part? Because it's so easy for us to use that as an excuse to not have to engage in a conflicted relationship. They wronged me, they did this to me, they don't deserve it. Yeah, that may all be true, but what are you responsible for? What are you willing to do? Well, I'm not willing to do anything. Okay, well, that's honest. But is that how God reconciled to you? You deserved God's reconciliation? You deserved God's forgiveness? Well, no. Okay, has he forgiven you? Yeah, Does he want to be reconciled to you? Yeah, then you can do this with other people. And I'll give you a starting point. If you don't know where to start in reconciling to someone who has wronged you, legitimately hurt you, no matter what that looks like, are you praying for them? Because it's really hard to hate someone or to hold something against someone who you consistently pray for. And you can do that. Man, this is hard stuff, isn't it? This is not easy. This is major heavy lifting, but folks, this is where we all, where we all live. And this is the hope that we see in this passage. Joseph did this. You can too, and so can I. But sometimes it's not that easy, Right? Sometimes it gets profoundly complicated, and that's why we need each other. That's why we need community. That's why we do this together. But sometimes you really can't. 
you can't reconcile with someone because they're gone. I've lost count of the number of folks I've talked with through the years who have wanted to reconcile with family, but they can't because they're gone. And I want to share this story with you as a story of hope. Um, This person wrote me this letter, and I use it with permission, that came in this last week. And as our worship team comes, we'll, we'll respond together in just a minute. But this is what this says. Um, Dear Pastor Jay, I'd like to say thank you for your sermon yesterday. At first I listened with great apprehension as I didn't know what you were going to say. And then I was encouraged when you clearly explained the difference between psychological forgiveness, the willingness to extend grace and goodness to those who have hurt us, and relational forgiveness, restoration or reconciliation. Thank you for doing that. My mother was one of my abusers. For the last 20 years of her life, we had no relationship. I did introduce her great-granddaughter to her before she became ill, but that meeting was if we were strangers, because we really were. But the Lord provided for me, and I was able to attend Phoenix Seminary, where through my classes, I was able to separate my earthly father from my heavenly father. I took every class I could with Dr. Tracy, author of Mending the Soul, and my next step, I thought, was to help my mom. For you see, I had put the puzzle pieces together and I understood much more completely her pain and her shame. And I wanted to help her. My sister said mom was needing care, so I felt safe as in her illness she had lost her voice and couldn't verbally abuse me anymore, so I decided to buy a plane ticket and go see her. I so wanted to pour the love of Jesus into her and help her find the peace and healing I knew she needed. She suddenly passed away before my flight. I so wanted to have restoration with her. But as I was reading through her Bible and her notes, I found out she did know the Lord. And that gave me peace and comfort that our restoration will take place someday before him who loves us. You see, for Jesus' followers, for those of us who know and love him, if reconciliation doesn't happen with another Jesus follower in this life, it will happen in the life to come. And some of us need to be reminded of that and remember that. Because there's hope there. And the hope that we have is this constant, consistent, never-ending love of God that he gives us. A love that we're about to sing about now. And as we do so, we want to invite you to think about what reconciliation looks like for you. First with God, but then with the relationships in your life. And you can do that because of God's love for you. Joseph could do it, you can do it, and I can do it. And there's hope in that. This is heavy lifting, forgiveness, reconciliation, and it can be simple and it can be profoundly complicated. And so what we want to remind you in our online community is you're not alone. This is a safe place to be in process. This is a safe place to do life and community together. And sometimes it takes community and wisdom to figure out what are the next steps forward with both of those realities of forgiveness and reconciliation. But here's the bottom line. You can do this if you know Jesus because you are forgiven. You have been reconciled to him. Just like Joseph did, you can do this too. 
And I want to pray his blessing over you as we go from here to live for him. Lord, thank you for this incredible time that we've had together. God, thank you for these songs of truth we've been singing. Thank you for the lives that have been added to your kingdom through young lives. Thank you for those so many young moms who have been now reconciled to their God. And so God, we ask for us that as we go from here, we would live the gospel by offering forgiveness, by being willing to be reconciled to those who have wronged us. Because God, you are the God who is always with us. You empower us by your spirit to live the very life that you call us to. Would we believe that? And now would we go live that? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, and we hope to see you next week. Go and live for him. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.